Hello. Welcome to another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. I hope that you all can hear me as I am speaking. Sorry for the delay. I was actually on a live stream that I hope others will join me from. Just let me know in the chat if you can hear me. Let me know if there are any issues. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good afternoon. I see people coming now. Please do not hesitate to get in the queue. Please do not hesitate to get in the queue. I want to make this more of a live Q&A, a real discussion. Ask me any questions that you may have about politics, about anything at all. I did a live stream today where I spoke about, I'm sure a lot of you came from there, where I talked about my Twitter jail sentence ending, the warning that I got that if I violate again, that I am going to be taken off of Twitter permanently. So I'm actually going to share with all of you before you leave here today, and don't let me forget my Telegram, because I am moving on to Telegram, not permanently, not like I'm going to not have a Twitter, but I am not going to rely on Twitter. I'm going to try to put my, really push my followers onto Telegram. And of course, uh, please do support me at patreon.com slash Danny I'm very close to my goal, very close, uh, just about $83 per month away. So if you can, please do support me at any amount. Thank you so much. But anyway, so as I said before, I talked about that. I also spoke about Syria uh, being bombed by Israel and the war crimes and how it's all connected. It is connected to this new Cold War. Uh, Do not get that twisted. It is. We have to understand Israel's war crimes against Syria as part of this larger objective of breaking up any alternative to imperialist rule. I also spoke about the ASBI in relation to my Twitter jail sentence, how they are coordinating with Twitter to take down accounts, take down any account that's, that challenges the geopolitics of the U.S. empire around China. And they're not doing just doing it with China. They're also doing it with accounts that challenge the U.S.'s imperialist aggression toward Russia, that also, uh, that also challenge U.S. imperialist aggression toward Latin America, right, Cuba, Venezuela. They're taking down accounts. They're calling it state-linked information operations. And uh, in 2020, they took down 170,000 plus accounts linked to supposedly to China. And uh, they took down several thousand more in 2021. And I believe that the campaign, not just against me, but I've heard against so many other folks, people from Xinjiang themselves, right? They, they act like they don't understand that people in China do have VPNs and they can access Twitter. They even say that uh, Chinese accounts are being operated by officials overseas as if they don't understand what a fucking VPN is. Anyway, I see Mike in the queue. If there's anyone else who uh, wants to chat live, please do come through because I want to make this more of an interactive discussion today. And we can talk about whatever, whatever. Right uh, to me, everything relates to the new Cold War. Everything relates to uh, the U.S.'s imperialist strategy against Russia and China to contain them, to overthrow them. It really is to me the foreign policy endgame of the profiteers, capitalists, corporatists, monopolists, the financiers who uh, are attempting to maintain their domination. 
But with that said, I'm going to get to Mike, and then please do all ch- chime in. Uh, I'm going to make you the next caller, Mike. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi, Danny. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the call. This is my sure. first time uh, joining your call-in, so I uh, appreciate it. My question had to do with uh, China in the cold and the new Cold War, specifically its uh, foreign policy. And I was wondering if you could just maybe share your thoughts on some of the, um, well, what I would consider to be contradictions, but maybe you see it differently in uh, China's foreign policy. I know for a long time, even up to today, China has a stance of non-interference in other countries' uh, internal affairs. But it seems that as the new Cold War progresses and ramps up, um, some of the contradictions are becoming perhaps more intense. Um, And I want to shy away from the Russia-Ukraine conflict because we've talked a lot about that. But more specifically, China's relations with, you know, very right-wing countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, or apartheid Israel or uh, in Latin America, you know, they have very strong relationships with Colombia, which has been, you know, for decades ruled by very reactionary uh, governments that are very harmful to the more progressive governments in the region, like especially Venezuela on its on its border, but also in the broader region. So could you maybe just share your thoughts on, you know, where you think that kind of dynamic is heading do you think that do you think that it is a contradiction i guess first of all and do you think that people should expect more of china in terms of maybe uh pushing back against those relationships um or maybe you know things like there is a a, a bds campaign for example um you know should giant should should china uh, throw its weight behind that uh, which would be pretty extreme. But anyway, could you maybe just share your thoughts on some of those relationships and just in general, how you see China's uh, foreign policy in the new Cold War? Uh, sure. Yeah. And I'll bring you back in um, after I bring in Rudy, um, after I answer. So, you you know, we can have kind of a back and forth, but I want to, yeah, I want to respond. I think that's a good question. You know, it's not one that, I feel like I've gotten it before and usually I think these questions are usually the best kind of questions because it helps us get a little deeper into I guess the the world situation so to speak uh, because oftentimes when we look at China look at the United States even as well they tend to be looked at in various kind of extremes right usually both of these countries in some form or another are viewed as having just this enormous influence. And sometimes that influence is real, like in the case of the U.S.'s military and economic influence. Sometimes it's a little less real. And I think in terms of China's influence and how it is able to operate on the world stage. And I think that one of the important things to understand about China's foreign policy this policy of non-interference is that it is not discriminatory, meaning that 
China is not going unless a country is really damaging China's interests, right? China's national interests. China is not going to take retaliatory actions against another country. And there are very good reasons for this, I think, just from the standpoint of how the international situation is kind of has kind of taken shape, especially since the end of the first Cold War. But really, I think since the rise of Pax Americana, 1945, the U.S. becoming an imperialist hegemon, any action on the part of China that is viewed as interference in the U.S.'s interests or really in just this Western domain, international order, is viewed as cause for retaliation. And so as China has integrated itself in the world economy, it, is, it has really by necessity and also by principles, because I think there are really good principles behind this too, has taken on an even firmer stance on aunt interference that I think has both had contradictions, because we, we can't say that there aren't firm principled reasons to oppose, let's say, Israeli aggression and colonialism, but also I think has had real positive impacts in the sense that China has, on the question of Israel, for example, been able to lend probably the most robust support for Palestine on the world stage of any major country. I don't think there is really a European or or the U.S. or any other major economy, quote-unquote major, I hate using that word major, but any all the big economies in the world, the most developed, most of them are capitalist, they haven't they have only done harm to Palestine. Well, China has actually been able to take, based on its policy of non-interference, a really solid stance where it recognizes Palestinian statehood, the Palestinian nation as a nation, and has been able to give assistance to Palestine diplomatically and also materially in key ways. So, And also denounce things like the settlements and violations against international law when Israel conducts them. It really is a rolling um, violation of international law. But nonetheless, it really is about striking balance because I think for China, this is a very volatile world order right now. There are, I mean, look at even with China's incredible alliance, like it's incredibly robust alliance with Russia, even in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, it's taken a very neutral stance, maintained very strong relations with Russia, but also separated Right, that relationship from what Russia does in terms of its foreign policy. So really, China takes a non-interference policy. And one of, I think, the things that we need to understand about the world situation is that any kind of confrontation right, with the U.S.'s allies actually doesn't help China, and it probably wouldn't even help the world. Right. I don't think it would help the world for China and the U.S. to fight openly, let's say, about Saudi Arabia. It wouldn't really be a winning battle because Saudi Arabia is such a key. It, it just has very valuable resources. Like You can't ignore Saudi Arabia if you're trying to develop an economy. You can't boycott Saudi Arabia if you're trying to develop an economy. You can, and a lot of times what has happened, like say in the case of Cuba – you know, you get ignored yourself, right? Cuba is a smaller country. Sanctions that the U.S. places on it reverberates to U.S. to its allies, and so Cuba gets isolated. So China is not going to isolate itself. 
has made that very clear. It's going to relate to all governments on the basis of mutual cooperation, but it also isn't going to get involved in what it deems are its internal affair are the internal affairs of other countries. And that of course comes with contradictions in light of the fact that there is an open struggle that imperialism is waging. And so it, it's a delicate situation. And I think that all in all, it is the most, for me, it's the most correct stance to take from this, from the standpoint of where China in particular is at, because the United States is still this very hostile, very unpredictable, and also a very likely player to cause instability and to uh, really ramp up aggression should you do the wrong thing. And so I think China has a really smart policy of, one, upholding a policy of non-interference, upholding the international law, uh, really placing those mechanisms at the forefront of how to resolve disputes, while also taking really principled stands where it is necessary, uh, especially when it not only hinders China's interests, but also hinders the entire planet's interests, like China's position on sanctions, for example, like China's position on U.S. interventions in Syria and in Ukraine, right? China has taken uh, firm positions on those things. It's just that in terms of actions, I think that's where the careful attention has to be placed. And China has said, no, we're not going to unilaterally intervene and try to stop, right? We can't unilaterally stop Israel. And also ceasing trade with Israel might have negative effects, not just on China, but also might have negative effects regionally, where Israel becomes much closer to the United States, much closer to the West, and uh, there isn't that balance that can also help shake things up a bit. So I think that there are contradictions to this. It can't; Nothing can be seen as 100% correct or incorrect, but I do think that there are more positives to this policy than not. And it really does speak to, I think, the overall world situation, the broader situation which China fits within. And while it is taking more of a global leadership role just on the basis of its own kind of development, it still has to contend with uh, forces that are really beyond its control. And so, yeah, I think it's a very good question. But for me, the policy of non-interference is probably the best we can get right now barring some monumental shift within the belligerent countries, right? Within the belligerent countries, if there is a monumental shift, for example, in the way the U.S. treats Israel, then perhaps China can be more intentional about how it can assert its principles on the world stage uh, beyond even, let's say, the international law framework, uh, because as we've seen with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, that's a very limited framework, We should be upholding it. We should be uh, defending it. But we know that uh, everything from the Geneva Conventions onward has been trampled upon, has been uh, kind of uh, uh, really spit upon by the U.S., by its allies. And so it's limited in the sense that you you have much of the world's most richest and most belligerent countries having no interest in it. And so I think that's where the contradictions really do arise with China's really strict adherence to it. Uh, 
Um, and in a lot of ways, this strict adherence to international law, to non-interference, has actually come with enormous dividends, enormous benefits to China and the world in terms of building bonds of cooperation across you know, 140 plus countries, China being kind of this mecca of economic development. And also with that economic development, really, I think, helping build the seedlings of real peace, as well as correcting some of the errors of the Sino-Soviet split, which did see China's foreign policy as containing some major errors. For example, uh, like in Angola, where China supported uh, one of the two, it wasn't the um, UNITA, but it was the other group, I forget what it was called, supported them in the... um, in the imperialist struggle against the MPLA and the National Liberation Movement there during uh, the uh, fall of the the period right before the fall of apartheid. That was a major error, right? That was a major error, but it was based on the Sino-Soviet split where there was more of, you could look at it as interventionist, you could really just look at it as like a competitive framework between the Soviet Union and China. I think that experience has really informed how China goes about its foreign policy now. That non-interference is very strict and very important to China because not only does it uphold China's interests, but it often also does lend itself to upholding the principles of international law and the correct position on, like, like do you get involved in, like, the Philippines? The China gets a lot of the same criticism. Or... Uh, Colombia, as you mentioned, right? Do you get involved in these conflicts, which a lot of them are spurred by the United States? There are human rights violations happening in these countries. Do you get involved directly? What happens if you get involved directly? Like, what are the ripple effects to that? And I think China is a lot more uh, astute on responding to that than it was during the end of the Cold War era, when there were real uh, uh, unpredictable forces. Uh, and a real unstable forces at play when it came to its split with the Soviet Union and, of course, the United States' attempt to leverage that split. But I'm going to get to Rudy and because they, they, uh, they've been waiting for a while. And then back to you, Mike. So, Or if there's anybody else, please do come. But Rudy, hello. Uh, Rudy, are you there? Yeah, Daniel. What's up, man? How are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm pretty good, man. Always a pleasure listening to you, and uh, hello to all the good people listening to Danny as well. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of really cool things you guys are talking about. Um, I think where you just ended, you know, what if China sort of joins Colombia, joins in the Philippines, joins in these, you know, legit struggles, you know? Um, but the thing is, Obviously, there'd be the world media going crazy, you know, um, blowing it out of control, making it seem like China's got other types of interests. You know, there wouldn't be this sort of... Because the media, whenever the U.S. does anything, it sort of gives... It extends some sort of, like, fair sort of thing. But then with China, you wouldn't be able to... uh, China wouldn't have that, you know. The media would obviously portray it as a negative thing, you know, and which would act, might actually make it more complicated 
for the Colombian people and the Filipino people because you know it has a sort of tinge of um, a foreign power coming in and are these people suddenly like legitimate are they you know are they being backed by Chinese money and this there's um you know decades and centuries of like you know racist sort of thinking um, that has been put into people's minds by you know the same you know sort of propagandists uh, you know in the US in the West so then this you know it's I can see why um, China might say no they don't want to you know get into something like that and just you know listening to Daniel Dunbrill listening to other people speak of China you know it seems like it's a people who are sort of you know rational we have a problem. Let's actually address it properly. We have like people who don't feel maybe necessarily super connected to the country. They don't speak the language. Um, you know, there's um, it could create a space for people to come in and speak badly and divide people. How about we put them into these schools? How about we build like massive complexes and then we t- teach people um, Chinese. We teach them um, skills that will get them into the market and all of that stuff. That seems you know, logical. And so I can see how, you know, they get involved in Angola and they learn something from whatever, you know, thing happens, you know, and then from decide to implement some sort of policy like the one that we're seeing, you know, I can, that, that stuff makes sense to me. So I wanted to definitely <laughs> touch on that. But um, before that, I also wanted to speak Something sort of like running through my mind. I was watching this journal. Um, Rudy, from, you're. You, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but you're. Uh, I don't know if anyone else can hear this, but for me, your your microphone seems to be cutting in and out. Um, so really? I don't know if there's yeah. an internet. I don't know if it's an internet connection issue or my issue or anyone else's, but just wanted to make you aware. Let me see. Okay, how about now? Can you hear me now? Yeah, it's good. It's good now. Okay. Yeah, so I was, I was watching this uh, journalist from, uh, I can't remember where he's based in Africa, but um, he works for like Radio France, something international. And so um, he's he's a guy that's quite mainstream, I'd say, like in African, um, in the African press, right? And he's got um, a documentary that's titled, you know, the... Um, I think what the name of the title is. It's either it's something like, let me see. I just have it up. Um, but basically, it goes over how the U.S. basically pretends that the the rules. So yeah, it goes l'Occident ou la raison du plus fort. So it's basically the West or you know the basically the law of the most powerful kind of. And basically, his point is. The West is out here always sort of pointing the finger, always giving us these moral lessons and such. But he's like, but we know these people, we know their history. And so talking about democracy, these people can't give us any uh, lessons. He's like, uh, talking about like uh, human rights and all of this stuff. These people of their kind after slaughtering millions of our kind and millions of Native Americans, you know. So, and this is like 
mainstream kind of thinking. You know, and it shows you how different the mainstream over there is versus the mainstream over here is, right? Um, just because, and I highlight that because I'm, I like this idea of like reality asserting itself. And over there, the reality that is itself is closer to the real reality, right? And over there, it's um, the mainstream is sort of forced to deal with this reality. They can't pretend like the mainstream over here. Um, they have to deal with that, you know, and part of it, yes, is for their own good, and, you know, because th- these people also have an attachment to their land and stuff like that, right? But then there's also people on the, you know, at this point, there's a lot um, of very... Rudy, Rudy, I don't mean to... Rudy. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I think um, if you could wrap it up, unfortunately, there are definitely some connection issues. So if you if you have a question, uh, please do ask it now, just because there are some connection issues, and we just want to, yeah. Okay, great. So I'm saying, do you foresee this sort of? I don't want to say clash, but like, there's a lot of these countries are getting an educated youth that is seeing how the world has basically been ruined by the West. And so like, do you sort of foresee our having to like confront that issue as people are asking for all kinds of reparations? Like now, like it's, it's right here, the world's blowing up and you know, we have the receipts, they have the receipts. Um, ask that question again. I missed that last part. What were you saying? I was saying, like, how do you do you do you see an issue sort of coming up with like our realizing, you know, more Americans realizing that yeah, cl- climate change is a real issue, and not only Americans realizing it, but people who haven't benefited from this globalization have realizing that you know the people who blew up the world basically are the West. Do you, like how? How do you think we're going to deal with that? Do you see this thing sort of coming up, you know, really at the forefront? And how do you think we're going to react to that? Like, how do you think we should react to that? That's sort of, it's been, I'm seeing a lot of like people who are concerned about the, you know, because they obviously have to be concerned about the climate change. Yeah, well, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't know why my app is frozen right now. Um yeah. So for me, I think that climate change is a tricky issue for me because I feel like a lot of the forces in the West that are fighting climate change do not have a global vision. Like they don't have an internationalist vision. They don't have they don't have an eye on solidarity. That most of them are very anti-China. Most of them. Uh, have, I would say, kind of like a, I don't know how to say it. They just have a very pro kind of Western outlook, a, a very narrow outlook. And it really has hindered, I think, the overall climate change movement in the United States. Uh, oh, it's really hindered it. And so it's hard to know if there will be any kind of real clash because... I, I think that there's just been such until that movement, right? I think there's been such a, a huge push to make 
the climate change movement into a pro-Western movement, into a movement that really just does protect Western hegemony, then unless there really is a break in that movement or if that movement becomes led by a real movement that's uh, in organizations that are class struggle oriented, those that are oriented toward making climate change a part of a, a larger program for emancipation of oppressed people, of working class people, then I think that clash could occur. But what I worry about with the overall climate change movement that it, is that it becomes so narrow, that there's so many forces seeking to make it so narrow and so much about the reproduction of uh, Western imperialism that it ultimately won't get to a point where this issue is addressed in a manner that will be significant, right? And, and I think when it, for the purpose of this podcast, we can see that in just the way that China is treated, how China is looked upon when it comes to the environment. So quick these forces are to point out that China is the global leader in emissions without even looking at some of the real per capita statistics, how Chinese households waste far less than American households or even European households, how China is uh, making so much progress around pollution and renewable energy. Uh, None of that is really part of the climate change movement equation out here. So until it is, and until it's led by, I think, uh, forces that are serious about a more broader kind of emancipation for oppressed people and for working class people. I don't know if that clash will come about, if we will see this movement really become a force for actual unity rather than just a a reinforcement of a lot of the prejudices and a lot of the divisions that we continue to fight against. But I, you know, Peter's been waiting, but I do want to get Mike back in here because uh, I answered his question a long time ago. But I'll, I'll, I'll make Mike the next caller, then Peter. If Rudy, you're still on the line, I'll try to get back to you. But um, I do want to get to new callers as well. So if there's anyone else who wants to come into the queue, please do. Uh, Mike, I just want to give you the chance to just respond to what I had said about your earlier point, if you had any contributions or further yeah, discussion. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, you, you made some really good points and clarified a few um, issues or questions that I had. So thank you for responding to that. I, I guess just to close I, or to respond, um, I do want to clarify, I, I wasn't necessarily suggesting that China should break its policy of non-interference. I think that is the correct policy, um, despite the contradictions that it might uh, lead to. I guess what I was maybe suggesting was, you know, China not unilaterally sanctioning countries that would be egregious that's what the united states does but perhaps lessening its support for countries that are clearly a damaging its allies specifically allies in the on the left uh, whether it's in latin america or in west asia or what have you um, but maybe reducing its mostly financial support by purchasing raw materials from those countries and looking elsewhere um, to, to do that, because I know China has its own needs and I'm not asking or suggesting it should, you know, sacrifice those entirely. Um, but I, I do feel like, you know, you and Rudy brought up the point, well, the media, if China were to do some of these things, the media might, you know, uh, 
misportray China and, 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 you know, come up with all this propaganda, well, they're already going to do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can see that now. <laughs> they're they're going to do that any, anyway. You know, whether they do that or not, the Western media is going to do that regardless. <laughs> so I, I, I don't think that's a great reason. Um, I know there are other reasons you listed, but that media point, I mean, it, the media in the West is awful. They're going to do that either way. So anyway, ju- that that's my final point is maybe not sanctioning, but just especially as things ramp up here with the new Cold War, I, I would maybe hope that we could see a slight change in terms of China's support to some of the more reactionary uh, countries. That's all. Well, I think those are good points. And I, I want to add, no, I didn't think that you were suggesting that China should take a more, I don't know, I, I don't even know what kind of policy, a more interventionist policy or a more aggressive policy around political principles. I, I, I didn't think that. Uh, I did I did get where you were going with it in terms of understanding, trying to, trying to understand this moment better and the world situation better. And I think one thing to watch out for, and I guess this is the last point before I get to Peter, um, one thing I want to watch out for is how as China develops and as its vision for, let's say, global integration develops, which is really a vision not just shared by China, it's Russia, Latin America, um, it was shared by some of the more robust and strong leaders on the African continent, like um, Muammar Gaddafi before he was brutally assassinated. But it has been a vision in Africa for quite a long time, this idea of integration, the idea of artificial borders, uh, impeding colonial borders, impeding economic, social, and political development, independent development. As this vision grows, because China gets stronger, economically, um, politically, its influence, and then also its partner countries getting stronger. I think we will kind of see the these fault lines take shape in and of itself. I totally agree with the point that the media is already doing it. Yes, the corporate media, the Western media, it's definitely with the Solomon Islands, as we covered here. There's so many instances, right? At domestic politics in the United States, there's a big political contingent saying China's interfering and all sorts of things from stealing economic quote-unquote secrets and scientific secrets to literally backing Black Lives Matter, right? There are big political forces who believe in these things. And we'll always ramp up something like China and Russia interference in order to whip up Cold War hysteria. However, I think in terms of the objective situation, one thing to watch out for that I think could be very interesting in terms of what we're talking about, what you're talking about. So as China strengthens and as its partnerships, and I'm talking about, I'm not just talking about bilateral relations, let's say China, Colombia, but these real multilateral partnerships develop, I think we'll kind of see this happen organically, meaning that China will have more freedom because China is still a developing economy. It is the second largest GDP-wise, largest PP, purchasing power parity, but it's still a developing country. It still has a per capita GDP five to seven times smaller than the U.S.'s, and still has a lot of needs and issues that it ne- that it can't just, um, I guess, negate or ignore. 
which I think is part of the policy of interference. It, it is a very pragmatic policy, not interference. It is a pragmatic policy as well. But I think as these partnerships strengthen, I think, and as these other countries begin to also strengthen and develop and become more prosperous and become more sovereign and independent, I think that this will kind of happen, that would happen organically. Now, when I say it would happen organically, I do believe that the United States and its partners, its, its, its allies, will try to interfere in this process every step of the way. They already are. Myanmar, we can go all Syria, all of it, right? It's all about interfering in this process. But all of these color revolutions and proxy wars and hot wars and all of it. But I think we will see the capacity for China to, and for just all countries, to really be more picky and choosy as they develop more solid economic relations that can both give full expression to the economic potential of countries that have just, including China, but countries around the world in much more dire straits, like a Bolivia, like a um, Venezuela, uh, uh, like a Syria, right? To be able to give full expression to their economic potential, that that can then lead to more um, capacity to make decisions about how you actually organize uh, th- some certain supply chains. I mean, if, if we were, if, if China was successful and its allies were successful in ending sanctions, for example, the possibilities could literally be endless, right? And I think one of the reasons for sanctions is to protect niche markets like the Saudi oil market, for example. Imagine if you had Iran, Syria, if you had, um, Russia, if you had, if you had all of these countries which are rich in oil, rich in gas, if you had them freely be able to trade and develop those markets, then you would have real competition, right? And I think that if we can have success in that area, then it, the more possibilities there are to open up more fronts for real accountability toward countries that really, 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 really deserve it, like Colombia. You know, knock on wood with its election. Um, hopefully it goes to the, I think, a semi-left or left-wing candidate. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, right? All of these countries really deserve accountability. So hopefully the conditions will continue to build up as such. So, Peter, I'm going to lend it to you. But I will say, please do, um, you know, I've been pretty loose here so far. But let's keep the comments to five minutes, okay, at the most, because I want to make sure other people are able to get in. And Peter, you are a longtime caller, and I really appreciate your support. Um, But let's try to keep it to five minutes. All right, you are the next caller, Peter. Hello? Um, I'm not hearing anything. Is that because of me? Can anyone else hear Peter? Okay, sorry, Sorry, Peter. I'm going to have to get to the next caller. Uh, I'll, I'll try to come back to you. Okay. So I'm going to get to Umit. I'm sorry to um, I'm sorry to butcher your name, uh, but you can you can go. Hi, Danny. Hi. Uh, no, no worries about my name. I'm, uh, I uh, I hear a lot of versions of my name, and I respond to all of them, so no problem. Um, okay, Danny. I, what I would like to know is, uh, well, we hear about China a lot. And about uh, the other countries, but what I what I would like to know is how is it going with other socialist countries in East Asia, like uh, Vietnam, North Korea? Is there any um, partnership between China and those? And uh, 
Are they also improving their industry like China did in the last 20 years? Mm. Um, if so, how is it going? Could you uh, maybe um, elaborate on that? Or is there any information about it? Yeah. No, that's a really, that's a really good question. It's, uh, yeah, let me, I'm just going to put you, I put people on mute and then I'll bring you guys back on to respond. Um, that's a really good question. Well, first, let's talk about Vietnam and China because that's a, a really, um, it's a big sticking point because people like to talk about how China and Vietnam had a, they did have a border conflict. They did. Um, 1979, it was ugly. It was, uh, you know, based, I think, in part on the Sino-Soviet split, Vietnam being seen uh, as being more close to the Soviet Union. And so it was a very unfortunate event. Both countries don't really talk about it because it, you know, it, it's really not a bright moment for the World Socialist Movement. And since then, though, um, there has been, especially in recent years, there has been more and more cooperation between the two countries. And this it mainly is economic. Although we saw last year, I believe it was, last year as, as there was more and more talks and rumblings about Vietnam being kind of a wedge that the United States is going to use against China. We saw that the Communist Party of Vietnam, Vietnam's political leadership, was very, very open about how it would not allow itself to be used as a pawn of any side, especially the United States, in a conflict with China. So there has been a lot of cooperation between the Vietnamese government and the Chinese government, uh, there has, especially around COVID-19, right? A lot of the vaccines that Vietnam has used very early on COVID-19 were Chinese vaccines. For a long time, Vietnam was holding out to try to produce its own as it was doing well with COVID. And then the thing, uh, you know, the situation changed. COVID became a lot harder to address. Um, and so that has been a big part of the cooperation. But economically, it's been a, a kind of a total, um, kind of like a total increase in trade. Like there has been much more, um, much more cooperation between the two countries, right? So, uh, you know, there's even just last year, right? China imported, I mean, Vietnam imported something like $27 billion of Chinese goods. There's more and more cooperation. China helped build uh, the first metro system in Hanoi. So there is a growing partnership after what was very difficult diplomatic relations during the Soviet era, during the closing years of the Soviet era, uh, that has changed a lot. And both countries talk uh, pretty proudly about their cooperative partnership and friendship. They're talking more openly. Uh, just last year in September, they were talking more openly about their joint socialist 
paths. There's path. There are paths of social to, towards socialist construction. I mean, honestly, if you want my opinion, my personal opinion, political opinion about China and Vietnam, I do believe that a lot of Vietnam's reform and opening up model, the Doi Moi, is based on China's reform and opening up the policy, because that's that's a lot of what. Vietnam adopted beginning in the 1980s to integrate itself in the global economy and to grow its economy and has made really big strides, uh, reducing poverty greatly, advancing infrastructure. Uh, Vietnam has taken a lot from China, even if it's not always explicitly said, but uh, I do believe that there is an acknowledgement of that. And then in terms of DPRK, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Interestingly enough, this also has been one of these uh, topics that's that's hard for people to understand because China, on the one hand, has been pretty serious about denuclearization, right? It wants to see a fair and just denuclearization of the entire Korean peninsula. It doesn't just lay that responsibility onto... Um, the DPRK, of course, but it has even gone so far to support sanctions against DPRK for escalating militarily. And some of that was because China was attempting to play mediator in what it saw was completely uh, unproductive uh, uh, developments between the North and South and all the players that were involved in the deterioration of relations in the Korean Peninsula and the threat that nuclearization would play. But on the other hand, um, China has deep bonds with the DPRK in so many ways. I mean, this dates all the way back to the Korean Revolution in the way that you know more than 400,000 volunteers uh, went to fight on the side of the of the of uh, uh, Korea's revolution against the United States' encroachments along the Yalu River. Um, and that was decisive in helping the Korean revolution move forward and strengthen itself in what was one of the more bru- most brutal wars in human history that the United States waged against Korea. So it dates back to there. And then in the modern era, we're talking about uh, tr- I mean, trade, right? China does not um, adhere to starvation sanctions against the DPRK. While it may have supported targeted sanctions on nuclearization, it does not support economic sanctions against the DPRK that the United States and its partners uh, have uh, waged against the DPRK since the beginning. Even just uh, in the last few days, China has come out publicly and said that these sanctions are counterproductive and they need to be lifted. And because the DPRK shares a border with China, uh, there are, you know, regular exchanges um, and the, and China provides a lot of necessary aid to the DPRK to help um, its economy and its people survive. You know, there is uh, a, both attention between the two countries, but I think also a robust uh, cooperation that dates back 70 plus years 
Um, and, and it will continue. So I think China, when it comes to socialist countries, we can look at Laos, the Sino Lao railway that just launched. Uh, those two countries have deep economic relations. Uh, whether we're talking about Cuba, Cuba joining the Belt and Road Initiative through energy cooperation. Um, you know, China has robust relationships with all the socialist countries, those that have communist parties and leadership, and it doesn't treat them any differently um, as uh, other countries that it has bilateral relations with. But it has been, and there is a political uh, uh, relationship here too, it has been open about when it does meet with these countries, it does uphold the fact that these countries are in are on their own path towards socialist construction too, and that they should be respected. So um, I think it's, it's important to understand that. And I think that uh, China's aid to even a country like DPRK has been so precious. Um, but, you know, trade restrictions have also made things really difficult, even for a country like the DPRK, which borders, um, which borders China, it becomes more and more uh, 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 difficult when the country, the DPRK has become more and more isolated over the years, but nonetheless, okay, I will try to get to Peter again, and then I'm probably going to close up unless there's anyone else who wants, I might let Umit um, reply. And then, so Peter, you are the next caller. All right, Danny, can you hear me? Yes. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Yeah, there's a reason why I got disconnected, but uh, I'll keep it at less than five minutes. Uh, first of all, I just want to let you know, uh, congratulations that uh, since, uh, Peter has uh, stopped censoring you. Uh, I was going to tell you the other day at the, the other show that uh, uh, there is a documentary uh, called uh, King in the Wilderness, as he's saying, as soon as uh, Martin Luther King come out against the Vietnam War, uh, even his closest uh, associates start dis- uh, distancing from him, distancing from him. Meaning that even uh, King basically saying, how come the Americans sending so many treasures out to Vietnam? Well, you know, the uh, racial minorities and a lot of poor people, you know, live in a horrible condition, right? So, so he got censored, basically, by his own people. And uh, I'm, uh, according to that documentary, he died in a, he, he passed away. He got killed, uh, you know, uh, during a very lonely year, a lonely time for him. So, so people like you who, you know, question, uh, you know, the United States Cold War mentality is uh, going to be punished by the government, by the, you know, private companies as well. So I want to tell you that. So uh, the second part I want to tell you is that I have a question. Uh, the reason I got the break off is that I literally is experimenting using call-in and the Zoom to stream into YouTube at the same time simultaneously. So call-in will be some kind of a call-in channel. At the same time, the, the YouTube and Zoom will can show the screen and the video. So, because uh, I have seen you doing YouTube first and jump on coding afterwards, would you be interested to do it all at the same time? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. No, I've been trying to figure out 
different ways to make this more integrated. Call-in, because it is something I'm contracted with, I think they do require I have like an independent show, but I could probably do like an independent separate call-in show that just streams on my other platforms. I think that would be fine. But um, yeah, no, I'm, I am interested in that. Um, I think that's, that's a good idea. I had, um, um, from, uh, I had someone who was suggesting that, you know, they have a nice, a better audio setup than I, I just do simple phone, uh, headset plugin, but you know, I was, I've been trying for a while to get my, um, my audio that I use for YouTube plugged in here so I can just more seamlessly uh, do this program. But no, it's, it, it is an interesting thing to think about problem with doing call-in. Yeah, no, if, if you have, you know, you should definitely reach out to me privately if you have the tech solutions, because I would definitely be open to hearing more about it. But, um, I'm going to let, uh, Umit, Umit, uh, please do correct me, uh, respond first. And then I'm probably going to close up guys. So, uh, before I let Umin in, please do make sure that you're subscribed, following me here. Um, please do, um, you know, make sure that you know, you know, if you're following and subscribing to this particular podcast. And of course, you know, best way to support my work is on Patreon. The link is in my profile. Um, I'm very close to my goal. I think I just had another subscriber. So thank you to them. Um, so I'm, I'm just, a a, sh- a shade, uh, under $80 away from my yearly goal. And I would appreciate if you could help me meet that, but Umit, I'm going to bring you on as to respond to anything I had said to your question. Now, um, if I've uh, understood it correctly, the, uh, the history uh, of, um, uh, the Republic, uh, People's Republic of China and Vietnam was very um, difficult uh, because they had a, a terrible war, as, a, as you told me. And but in the last couple of years, the the, uh, the relationship has has uh, became uh, become stronger, and there is a difference in the kind of socialism that the Vietnam has and China has. Yeah. Okay. Um, and with Korea, it's it's uh, it's uh, the other way around. They had a very good relationship of uh, ever since the beginning of the of the People's Republic of uh, uh, DPRK. I mean, um, so okay, that's uh, that sounds very good. But the sanctions uh, against uh, against DPRK make make uh, make it difficult even for China for to to um, um, have a good. Um, how to say good trade or, or uh, relationships in, in that in that way, but they still help them financially. What I would like to see is some kind of intellectual exchange between these three countries, anyway, in East Asia, so we could see uh, a similar kind of uh, uh, increase in prosperity in uh, in both DPRK and Vietnam. And well, maybe I hope for it. <laughs> Many thanks, Danny. Yeah, yeah, no worries. And and just a, a bit of clarification. I think that's a good summary. I do think that, yeah, you know, there's complexity here. So 
you know, the DPRK and China have had tensions really on the world stage because of, I mean, it's a difficult situation. You have the DPRK borders China, the DPRK and the Republic, quote unquote, Republic of Korea, supported by the United States, really have been at odds. There's been a militarization of the South, which has led to the DPRK needing to militarize, which has led to China being concerned about an open conflict on its border, leading to the China disagreeing with the DPRK even on certain strategies and some deterioration of relations, but never to the point where it brings about any kind of cutoff in aid or, or solidarity in other areas economically where it's possible. Because again, sanctions have been so, I mean, the sanctions on DPRK are some of the most, if not the most vicious in the world. But then there's also um, Vietnam where Vietnam and China, I mean, prior to the revolution in Vietnam, before the Sino-Soviet split, I mean, China was also giving aid to the Vietnamese liberation movement, giving it to the National Liberation Front, giving aid giving volunteer help, all kinds of things to help Vietnam fight against colonialism, U.S. imperialism. But it really was a Sino-Soviet split that put them at odds with each other, leading to that dispute in 1979, which they call a border dispute in some respects. They call it a war in other respects. But it was an unfortunate, very brief, I think it was two weeks long. Well, it did lead to casualties on both sides. And then... Really, since 1991 onward, it's been a slow but really progressive move toward cooperation and collaboration. Um, and and so now, right, the United uh, China is a huge trading partner of Vietnam, and vice versa. And and that's only going to continue. And there is more political acknowledgement, I think, of socialist construction. The similarities between the two paths that Vietnam and China are taking in terms of socialist construction are very similar at this point. Um, with that said, though, I've been on for nearly an hour. It's been a great episode. I don't know. I don't, I don't see anyone else on, you know, please do continue to share this around. Make sure that you have this, uh, podcast as part of your subscriptions. I have one more caller. I'll take Anthony, uh, and then we will close up here, but make sure that you're following this podcast. Make sure they're following all, um, you know, uh, 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 my work, you can do so and support it on patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Also follow me on telegram, the Haifong press. Look me up there, uh, because I am moving more and more toward telegram as the, uh, really the, um, suppression against us becomes worse and worse. So, uh, with that said, though, I'm going to take Anthony. Uh, I think I forgot to share this on Telegram. Oops. All right. Um, but I'm going to share that with them now. Um, okay, Anthony, you are up. Oh, I made you a speaker. Sorry. Um, I'm actually going to make you a caller. There you are. Yeah, Telegram, calling, Twitter, it's a lot of apps, but hey. Yeah, it is. It really is. Yeah. It's a lot to manage. Yeah. <laughs> Keep you know, keep them on the run, zigzag path. They can't <laughs> nail you down. <laughs> but uh, what's up, man? Uh, I love to talk. I just think um, one thing I was thinking is that you know uh, the way uh, American government or American uh, 
uh, capitalists act abroad is they just, they're so, I don't know, schizophrenic and entitled and like they want to fight a war with you and still, you know, um, buy your oil or whatever at the same time or all kinds of crazy stuff. They just feel entitled. They, they can, they feel like they can disrespect you and then show. Uh, I'm sorry, having some microphone uh, issues. You know, I missed a lot of that. Okay. I'm, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're you know, the American leadership is really uh, entitled in uh, bad acting. Let's go. Sorry about that. Well, we're gone. Um, you can call in if you can. Uh, I'm probably going to, for some, oh, now you're completely gone. All right. Well, Anthony is gone. I can wait maybe a couple more seconds. But it's good to be with all of you today, guys. Um, be sure, as I said, to follow me on all my platforms. Let me actually, well, is Anthony back? If he is, you know, he's not in the queue. I have a link tree as well that I should be promoting, honestly. Um, so I'm going to be promoting that more. Maybe I'll put it in my profile. I'll probably put that in before I leave here today. Um, but actually, my phone is kind of going berserk as I try. So let me not try that. Uh, Anthony is not back here. He must have had some connection issues. I'm giving him a minute. Thank you, Ware. Uh but yeah, no, uh, definitely, you know, while we're waiting for Anthony to come back, you know, I was on live here on the left lens on YouTube. So if you're not subscribed to me there, you want to go there and just subscribe. Um, I have a Substack as well, chroniclesofhyphon.substack.com. Uh, you'll want to subscribe to that Substack too. You can do so for free, uh, but annual subscriptions are always appreciated. Help me get to that goal um, even faster. Uh but I don't put really anything behind a paywall. Subscribers to my Patreon do get um, early notification generally of everything that I do. And I'll do something special for them as well once in a while, whether it's a stream. Um, and But yeah, I try not to keep anything behind a paywall. I don't know if Anthony's coming back. But with that said, everyone, um, I, I do have to, I should be going. Um, but it was good to be with all of you today. Good to be with all of you this afternoon. Thanks for all of those who came from my live stream. Uh, I think we had a really good conversation. And um, I'll be back again. So here's the deal with me. Uh, so it's just some logistical cleanup stuff. I You want to just make sure you watch out for the notifications. Sundays have been getting a little more complicated. This Sunday, I definitely will not be doing a podcast. I don't think I, – I might try to get to a podcast here if I can at some point during the week next week. But my sister's going to be in town. It will be a lot harder to do so. So uh, do not expect it, but I will try. Um, I'll be out of town for three days in the middle of that week. And it's just going to be kind of like a crazy week. So that week might be a wash in terms of a podcast, but uh, be, be on the lookout, make sure you subscribe here. So if I do happen to go on, you um, are able to tune in. And uh, then you might expect from me the week of the 26th, you might expect from me more than a few podcasts. If I am unable to get, to one next week just to make up. That's kind of the policy here on Colin. 
And I think it might be a good idea to try to make up uh, those uh, that I miss. So, so yeah, um, that's, that's what you can expect from me. Um, I think I see uh, Charlie actually in the listeners. I just want to let him know that actually the tech issues were cleaned up. So thanks for your help here at Colin. Um, so it's been a really good experience thus far. And uh, as uh, there's a lot to navigate and uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, uh, I have a particular phone, Android phone. And so uh, thanks for all the help. But with that said, everyone take good care. I'm going to end now. Uh, be on the lookout for more announcements in the future. Uh, peace out. Uh, be sure you're following me here and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.